we've been on a, a, a theme before Jericho in the narrative when you read in the book of Joshua on Gilgal. And um, the, 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 the two seconds sort of bringing you up to speed really is that Gilgal was this place that the new generation who had come across the River Jordan stopped at when they first came into the land of promise. It was a place where they circled around to be marked again by the Lord, to be reminded that there is people and how we uh, are applying that to our lives, how we want to be marked by the presence of God. We want him to cut back what he needs to cut back in order that we can become the people that he's calling us to be. And so while Gilgal in some ways was a place of taking stock and looking back and remembering who they were, were, I guess Jericho starts to turn, uh, cause the children of Israel to turn their faces forward to all that God promised them, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of promise, a land of destiny, but also a land that there were giants in. Um, the spies had told them that many years before, and also a, a land where there was Jerichos, where there was tall strongholds that looked impenetrable, that looked like fortresses, that looked like um, uh, enemies that were going to be too great to topple. Jericho was an intimidating site for many of the children of Israel. And uh, as we apply this narrative and this particular part of Scripture to our story as a church, we believe that the Lord speaking to us and wanting to help us become informed in our thinking about the strongholds in our own area, that He's calling us to do something about, to pray about, to be the people of God uh, in that context in order to see those strongholds come down. Um, he wants to bring us into a place of inheritance and destiny. But I guess what we um, feel that the Lord is doing in us, even as we prepare for all that's ahead and a new building, we're about in a couple of weeks' time to celebrate our fifth birthday as a church. We'll be telling you a little bit more about that over the next week or two. At the start of December, we'll be five years old. It's remarkable to think all that God's done in those years. But as, as we in some ways feel like we're just getting started, um, we do feel like the Lord is doing a work inside us. In other words, we can't really call for walls to come down and strongholds to come down out there until we allow God to do the work in here. Yeah, where the walls need to come down in our hearts and in our strong, the strongholds in our in our hearts. And so last week we realized that what happens in the in this particular flow of the book of Joshua. Um, it appears that Joshua isn't fully ready to see Jericho fall down until Joshua deals with the stronghold of the Jericho in his own heart. Right? And so let's just read the same passage that we read last week again. Um, we will at some point get to walking around those walls over the next couple of weeks, but I um, <clears throat> really feel like the Lord's speaking to us through this passage over these weeks. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked him, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua is confronted by the army of the Lord, of which many people see as a, a prefiguration, if you like, of Jesus. Um, 
an impressive commander of the army of the Lord, and he asks Joshua, or sorry, when Joshua sees him, he's, it's almost confrontational in, in a sense. He's, he's, he's wowed by this, this person standing in front of him with drawn sword, and Joshua can only think to ask him, are you for us or are you against us? And he gets this remarkable reply, neither. Neither. And what we pushed hard into last week was that God wants us to deal with the strongholds in our own life. Any stronghold, generally speaking, first and foremost, there can be any number of different things that we have a sense of resistance to that God wants to do in our hearts. Sometimes we don't even know they're there. But I guess we also want to be real enough to <clears throat> become aware of the stronghold of sectarianism within our own town, this big stronghold that's in this particular area that we live in, and religion, and how pride and competitiveness and one-upmanship can root itself in our hearts. And see, maybe we should ask the question as we look at this, just a bit more of a primary question, can a, can a Christian, can a follower of Jesus, or can somebody who calls themselves a Christian still have this kind of stuff living in their hearts? Yes, they can. Can you go to church? Can you sing the songs? Can you, can you live a morally decent life and still give the devil a foothold in your life? <clears throat> Absolutely. Most definitely. And uh, if a time would show you that in the scripture, because Paul in the book of Ephesians tells the believers what they are in Christ, who they are in Christ. Those great passages about being predestined, adopted, sealed with the Holy Spirit. And then he says to them, see that you do not give the devil a foothold in your life. Um, I was listening to something this week and it just reminded me of how the devil wanted, what did the devil want in heaven? He wanted the throne, didn't he? He wanted to sit in the throne. He wanted that place, but he didn't get it. And so he was cast out of heaven. And so he still wants to establish his throne. But where is the place where Jesus builds his throne on the earth? Where is the place? In your, in, in your heart. So if the devil can't get the throne in heaven, what throne do you think he wants? He wants a throne in your heart. And that's, he hates your life. He hates you. Because you are an image bearer. You're the next place on the earth where God wants to establish a throne. And so he wants to do everything he can to steal and kill and to destroy from your life, to get the throne of your heart, to get a foothold into your life. And if he gets a foothold, then he can build a stronghold. And, uh, and that's what we see throughout the Bible, and through some, we all have experienced that. And, um, and, the, and the first generation that came out of Israel is a sign of this. They were people that had been saved, but they never inherited what God had for them because they weren't able to kick out the lies of the enemy in their lives, and they became influenced by them so much that they missed out on their inheritance. And so Joshua, who's going to lead this new generation in, God is kind of confronting him in this moment and saying, Joshua, you're probably still not fully ready to inherit this land or to lead a new generation into it until we deal with the parts of our lives that are under the influence of the lie of the enemy. And any part of us that sees another image bearer of God, no matter what race, creed, or background they come from, that sees them as any less than us, or see them as part of a, or feel like the ideology or system that we are part of is better than theirs, that part of our lives is under an influence of a lie of the enemy. 
It's under a lie. And so we have to do something about it. You can't walk into the fullness of your inheritance if you still think a particular individual that you've fallen out with or a people group that you have been educated to think are less than you or be, but all of that, that is under, that part of your heart, that part of your mind needs renewed. It's a foothold of the enemy exists there. Maybe more than a foothold, maybe a stronghold. And so what we, what we are reminded about here through this passage is that Joshua, for Joshua, God can't allow the people of promise, the people who are going to carry his dream, to reduce him down to their agenda. He won't allow them to reduce him down to their political mandate or to their own denomination. Because God knows if they do do that, they will not represent them well. And unfortunately, that has been the testimony of different parts of the church throughout the ages. And so we're seeing that play out in our world even now. You just have to put on the news. Sometimes this stuff starts out subtly, and that's why you have to discern it. But it starts out subtly, and it ends up becoming utterly grotesque in the name of the Lord. We're seeing it in the war in Russia. God God is used. God is being used. God's name is being used. We're seeing it in right-wing fundamentalist evangelicalism, particularly in America, but also here. We're seeing it in our own politics in this country. We see it in the church. This worldly, political, religious spirit gets in amongst God, and it's a, it's a foothold of the devil. And it begins to operate in a domineering, prideful, competitive way. Before we know it, we're trying to make God play to our tune. We're trying to get God to move to the beat of our drum. And sooner or later, in one sense of the word, where God never gives up on us, he kind of leaves the building because God resists the pride. He resists the pride. And God said to Joshua, and I think he's saying to us, you can't carry my name when too much of our identity is attached to another name. You can't fully carry my name when you have too much of your identity attached to your own name. <laughs> This is actually what I think it means to take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, many of us were schooled not to take the Lord's name in vain, to, in a sense, use God's name as a swear word. And of course, that's an awful thing to do. We shouldn't do that as Christians. But I think what God was really getting at to the children of Israel, taking God's name in vain is doing your own stuff and slapping God's name on top of it like Jesus would be your little mascot for your agenda to do your thing. That is, and particularly when it's used to domineer other people. That, that is what I think taking God's name in vain is. That's what I think when we use for God an Ulster or put whatever other title you want behind it or other nation or other people group. That's what I think in a sense we're doing. If, uh, and, and I know where, where I'm standing right now that will feel contentious to some of you. But that's what I think we're doing. I think we're taking the name of the Lord in vain because we're using it for an agenda that we want, not necessarily for the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the culture of his kingdom to be established on the earth. And God had to confront Joshua with this. And I think God has to confront some things in our own hearts in this. And what I've also realized, I think this is why the Old Testament at times to us feels quite intense. <laughs> it feels like God is this jealous, intense God. But he's wanting, it's because, it's because he is jealous in love for his people. And he knows his love has to burn up 
like, it, like, like Moses' burning bush. It has to burn up every false identity, every attachment to every other thing other than his goodness and his glory and his love. It has to burn us up, but yet not let us be consumed. And so God is intensely working a bit like a father to a toddler or a mother to a toddler. You, you don't sit and certain, you, there's certain instructions you give to a toddler that you don't have like a, a grown-up conversation about. It's like, don't do this because this, this will hurt you. Or do, you know, and you, you get quite direct and intense with your instructions because you're trying to train them in a way that they will grow up to share your heart. And then, like, eventually, like, a father and a son or a mother and a daughter or, a, 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 you know, a parent and a child kind of relationship where they can share your heart and you become one in your thinking. But it, it needs trained and educated. And this is what God was doing with the children of Israel because, in a sense, they were, they were toddlers. They were slave people. They had no understanding of who God wanted them to be. And yet God has sent his love upon them and said, I want you to be the people of promise. I want you to carry my heart. Um, I want you to get what your mother and fathers didn't get in the wilderness. I want you to realize that the inheritance that lies in front of you is intrinsically tied up with my own inheritance for the nations. Now, what I just said there is a really, really important point, not because I said it, but because it's in the Bible. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take 10 minutes to teach in this, and it's going to get a wee bit deeper. Is that okay? Are you okay for a wee bit of theology this morning that I think is really, really important. Please, you all right? Yeah, you all right? Good, good. Now, c come with me on this, because this, I think, for theology is not right, and theology isn't like a big academic word. It's about how we love God how, and how he's revealed through the scriptures. But if our theology is wonky on this kind of stuff, it has dire, de desperate, brutal consequences. Right? So I want you to try and come with me. I'm going to try and do it really quickly because it's on this principle of inheritance in the Bible. And it's really quite key. God wanted to inherit all the nations. God wants all, all of the world. The earth is the Lord's, the Bible says, and the fullness thereof. He, 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 he created all people for his glory. We know that in the beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, he wanted them to partner with him in the stewardship of his glory throughout the whole earth. He basically wanted them, you've heard me say it before, to extend the borders of the Garden of Eden throughout the whole earth. He wanted them to carry it. This was our original design as image bearers, right? But sin, self-centeredness, disobedience caused us to become desperately damaged as human beings. And so our inheritance became a self-seeking inheritance. If I eat of this tree, or well, the devil said, if you eat of this tree, you can't be like God, right? So our inheritance became a self-seeking inheritance. And the Tower of Babel was, in a sense, which when they tried to build a big, did I put a picture of it? Yeah, when they tried to build that big tower in Genesis chapter, whatever it was, 11, I think, 10 or 11, they tried to build this big tower. This was the epitome. This was like the epitome of humankind trying to seek their own inheritance, to, 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 um, to, to, to be like God, to reach the heavens in and of themselves. And, and what happened at this particular point, and this is quite crucial, is it's hard to find the right language, but in a sense... God had to disinherit the nations because of their rebellion. And he had to, like a father 
who is brokenhearted over a child who will continue to rebel, almost has to let them go in the hope that they will one day return. God, in a sense, has to give up the nations because of their ongoing willful wickedness and rebellion. It's pretty intense, right? And God also, with that, almost allowed the rebellion in the heavens to also oversee the, the, the wickedness of the nations. But, as desperate news as that sounds, God immediately had already got a plan because he picked a man called Abraham, who was from the era of the Chaldeans, which is another way of saying Babylon, which is where Babel is. So God picks a man from there and asks him to start walking. So he picks a man from the most rebellious kind of center of the universe in order that one day he can win all the nations back to himself. You getting me? You with me here? Yeah? So Abraham, God speaks to Abraham. And what does he say to Abraham? We've taught in this lots. I want to bless you and bless your descendants through, so through you, what? All nations will be blessed, right? So God has already back here started a, a rescue plan for all nations because God wants to inherit all nations. And that's what we, that's how the Bible unfolds itself. And so the children of Abraham, under Moses' leadership, 400 years later in Egypt, come out. And again, we've, we, we've, we've heard these scriptures before. Israel becomes this nation, the descendants of Abraham, who are carrying God's promise for all nations. And that's why it's intense in the Old Testament, because he wants to set his love upon them. He wants to call them to himself. He, he wants them to get how jealous he is for their love and to reflect him well, to basically showcase who God is to all nations. That is what Israel were chosen for. Listen to these beautiful scriptures again. They're just worth reading because they're so beautiful. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I have carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, see there? Then out of all nations, so I'm calling you out of all nations, you will be my treasured possessions. Look, although the whole earth is mine, see, see the big picture? The whole earth is mine, you will be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words that you speak to the Israelites. And so God was saying, I'm, you're, you're, I'm calling you out of all nations so that one day you will win, we will win all nations. Yeah? And God's hope, God, 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 as God's children, his hope was that by living into their inheritance, they would help fulfill his. You tracking with me? In living into their inheritance, they would help fulfill his inheritance. God wants to partner with his people. The prophets then have to remind Israel of this throughout. And the most obvious one is, is Isaiah when he says, you shall be, a, Israel is called to be a light to the nations, right? So this is the principle of inheritance. And the reason I want to do this is because you will probably go into any Christian bookshop and pick up a, pick up a, a book on destiny and inheritance and being all that God wants you to be. And all, so I'm sure there's loads of brilliant books now, but many of them get quite self-seeking. It's, it's just about me becoming the best version of me. It's a kind of Christianized form of the way the world talks today. You know, just be you, be true to you, and be the best that you can, you know? And what it, what it lacks is an understanding of how we fulfill our inheritance by being part of God's own 
inheritance, that when we give our lives away, that we truly find life. And this is, this is what God always wanted. God wanted these children of Israel to grow up into mature sons and daughters to walk in complete unison with the Father in order for his dream to come true. And so that's why God says to Joshua, when he's like, are you for us or are you for them? He's like, Joshua, for goodness sake, neither. Are you not getting this? I'm, I'm not for one more than the other. You've got to like, graduate in your thinking here. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. This is my battle. This is my unfolding story. And you will only fulfill your inheritance. You can only bring the people into inheritance as you recognize the part you're playing in mine. Now, what I'm going to do now is help you see how Jesus then, when Jesus came on the earth, and how we try to apply this to our lives now, it's his interaction, God's interactions with Joshua and the children of Israel, Jesus fulfills it, this principle of inheritance. Because Jesus came... Jesus didn't come isolated or disconnected from this story. He came in the line of this story unfolding, and he came to fulfill this story. And God, in Jesus, stepped into Israel's story and came to fulfill what we're seeing here in Joshua. Because in the end, everything that I've just described that Israel were called to be, in the broad arc of things, while there's some bright spots along the way, they didn't really do it. They never really fulfilled that vocation. Uh, they did at certain moments, but ultimately, as the big arc of the story moves through the Old Testament, the kind of conclusion is that they sought their own inheritance more than they surrendered themselves to fulfill God's inheritance. Right? Everyone still with me? Still with me? Good, good. That's good. That's a, that's a win. But Jesus came to show us what the true Israel should have looked like. He was a better Joshua. He was baptized in the River Jordan, as we looked at last week. And he went on, came out of the Jordan, like the children of Israel, to live a selfless life, not a selfish life. Jesus lived in full and perfect obedience to the will of the Father. And in doing that, he was perfectly, and what you're trying to get this, perfectly partnering with the Father so that the Father could inherit all nations, so God could have his dream fulfilled of a family around his throne. And we see this in the life of Jesus, confirmed by his selfless laying down his life, embodying who God is and the, the love that he showed others. We see it in his life, but ultimately, we, we hopefully know this, we see it in his death. Because Jesus' perfect obedience to the mission of God to lay down his life was fulfilled when he hung on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus was showing all the nations, not just the Jews, not just the children of Israel. Jesus was showing the whole world. This is a centerpiece of history itself. Jesus was showing the whole world that God, what God looks like and what God longs for and what God is prepared to do in order to win all nations back to himself. But what I also want us to try and understand today is when Jesus died on the cross, not only did he die to save the sins, our personal individual sins, of course he did that, doing for us and doing for humankind what they cannot do for themselves, but he also allowed every principality and power, every evil force, 
Every rebellious, rogue angel that went, went, went AWOL, went rogue from the beginning, every principality and power that has governed all those nations for all of those years, Jesus allowed in his own body for their wickedness, for their rebellion, for all their, 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 their evil to be unleashed upon Jesus on the cross. This is what Jesus endured for us. This is why Jesus, when the Garden of Gethsemane, would great sweat great drops of blood. This is why, when he's thinking, oh, Father, is there any other way? It's not just the physical pain he was about to endure. It was the fact that all of hell and all the rebellion of all the evil heavenly realms was being unleashed on this 33-year-old single man who'd been deserted by his friends, sat in a garden, and he endures it. And he finds a way of saying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And in the cross in those three hours of darkness, every stronghold, every Jericho, every principality and power is being unleashed upon this man who is hanging on a cross. And in this, and, and, and the thing about it is, because that happened, Jesus, in these moments, he drained evil of its power. He absorbed into his own body every evil, dark force that we can think of. And while the enemy thought he had won, what the enemy didn't realize was that this love was so strong, was so powerful, was so pure, so selfless, so loving, that it had power to overcome that. It had power to raise the dead. And it had power to come back up out of the grave. This, this, so that every stronghold could be broken. The enemy hadn't realized this. Like in, in Narnia, he hadn't realized there was, a, there was a deeper magic in the earth. He hadn't realized that this, in the natural, seemingly senseless act, that the God of the heavens would hang on a Roman cross, was actually the most powerful act in history that ever happened. This is why it's foolishness to the world. This is why it dumbfounds the principalities and powers. It completely, it's the best judo move you've ever seen. <laughs> like when they were doing their best and exerting all their strength, Jesus flipped it all, but it, it cost him everything. And because he's done that, more, 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 and this, this is all part of the Jericho theme. I promise this is all going to, time going to tie us all together, right? Colossians chapter 2 tells us this. Verse 15, I think it's, yeah, having disarmed powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. The, the imagery here is of a conquering king in that culture coming into a city where they would shackle the king that they've just conquered. He would be traipsed into the city and brought around the city, and all the people of that city would come out and mock that king and all their followers. And this is the language that Paul is using to describe what Jesus did to the devil, that Jesus made a public spectacle out of him. This is this is the cross and the, red, the, 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 the bread and the, and the juice, which we're going to remember later. This is what it reminds us Jesus has did for us. So that every person who receives this work into their lives is a sign, is a sign to the enemy, you lost. You lost. And so when we break bread together, we're going to remember the devil lost. So because the devil lost, Every stronghold can fall. And the beautiful thing about the inheritance thing is this. Back in the Psalms, in Psalm chapter 2, 
they kind of prophesied this. Now, what, what, look at this line here, Psalm chapter 2. It's, it's a messianic psalm, probably speaking towards David, but it's a much bigger meaning as many of the psalms do. And it says this, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Look, ask of me, look at this verse, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. <laughs> it's, really, it's, really, it's really beautiful to think that Jesus left heaven, lived a life of perfect obedience, so God the Father could have his dream back. So that in the end, because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice, the Father said to the Son, I'm going to give you all nations. Isn't that, isn't that the beautiful thing, how the Father and the Son work together? That Jesus came so that the Father could have his dream, and the Father raised Jesus up from the dead and seated him at the right hand so that he could give Jesus all nations. So that one day, this is where the story's all going, isn't it? Every knee, every tongue will confess that who is Lord? Jesus. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's beautiful. But you know what? There's more. <laughs> Sound like a comedian, right? It gets even better. That's not just Jesus' inheritance. That's yours. This is your inheritance. This is the inheritance we get to partake in. Not just you doing great things with your life and your little isolated life, but like it's great things and you feel fulfilled every morning. You get to partake in the dream of God for all nations. See, once you get this, see, once you start to get this, you open up a book like Operation World. Does everyone, anyone have Oper you know, Operation World, a great missions organization? And it gives you, like, how many Christians live in every country and what God still needs to do in every country. And, you know, the type of, and, and, and you look through, or, or you get fascinated by a map when you walk into a prayer room. Or, or you, or you get in a plane and you look out, the, you look out at the, you know, you look out at those panoramic kind of views and you think, I get caught up in the dream of God, for all nations. This, this is our inheritance. This is our inheritance because we've been raised up to sit with Christ in heavenly places. We get to partner with Him in our inheritance. I think is, this is why Jesus said, "If you follow me, I will give you life." And life in all its fullness. This is why the great apostolic prayer of Paul is this. Watch out for the word inheritance, Ephesians chapter 1. This is Paul praying as he writes. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know him better and better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious, look, inheritance in his holy people and his incomparable great power for us who believe that the power, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above here to all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. 
when God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. <laughs> so Paul is like, I pray, I pray. You can just see him on his knees. You can see him praying in the spirit. You can see him stomping around whatever room he's in while he's writing this or somebody's probably scribing it for him. And he's like, I pray, God, would you open the eyes of their heart? Would you open the eyes of their spirit? Not just their natural eyes, but would you quicken and awaken their spirits to help them know that this glorious hope to which they've called them is bigger and beyond anything that they could ever imagine because of what Jesus has done on the cross and because he's been raised up above every other power, dominion, stronghold, and authority, that this glorious inheritance that has been given to Jesus for all nations actually is theirs. Open their eyes, Jesus. Open their hearts, God. Help them to see what you want to do. And so as we look ahead to all that God has for us, every Jericho can come down. Because one day, every Jericho will come down. And that starts with their own hearts, but it overflows into this town and this city. And so the reason I'm taking some time to do a bit of a sweep through the Bible and lots of Scripture this morning is we dare not think that we can go through this and into this in our own strength. But we need to be rooted seated with Christ in heavenly places, realizing and recognizing the authority that Jesus has conferred to us in order to pronounce his name, his victory, his cross over our community, over our lives, over all that he has for us in the day ahead. Because everything that is working to resist that purposes, which is a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual family of God, one day that will all be defeated because that's God's dream. Wouldn't it be really boring if heaven was just like loads of me? <laughs> like it would be, it would be like it would be terrible. Like who would want to go there? Right? But what God is, what God is working in the earth is a new humanity. Finish with this scripture, and then we're going to take communion as we close. There's lots more to say, say, but I want to leave it here, and we're going to pick it up again next week. He says this in Ephesians 2. We read from Ephesians 1, now Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting it aside in his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in his body, <laughs> this isn't a theory. This isn't, this isn't just like a doctrine. It's the, it's the body of Jesus. It's the very body, in his body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Any hostility that we feel towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, any hostility we feel towards any other image bearer, and it, 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 it might be for good reason, if that's the way to put it, something terrible might have been done to you or to your family. And I, uh, on Remembrance Day, I really don't want to invalidate that at all. And there's a place for grief and for lament and for working through the pain that we do to one another as image bearers. But ultimately, Jesus comes 
to make peace. And any hostility that we continue to harbor in our hearts towards any other image bearer is under the lie of the enemy. And Jesus wants to release us from that and forgive us from that so that we can become one new humanity. And when Paul went around the Mediterranean basin and when he went into little homes and he sat around tables, no mega churches back there, by the, by the way. There was nothing to be impressed about in terms of buildings and worship teams and slickness and PowerPoints. And there's, there's none of that to be impressed by. What he did is he went into homes where there's maybe 30, 20, 30 people. And he saw a master and a slave around the same table. He saw a Jew and a Gentile. He saw black and white. He saw male and female. He saw kids that were usually in that culture pushed out the side, sitting around the table. And he watched them take a loaf of bread, and he watched them break it. I, one of the things about getting bigger is I, I long for tables that we sit around and we just take one loaf, and I know it's not hygienic, but we just take one big loaf of bread and we break it because we're one body, and we break that body, we break that bread, and we give it to one another, and we, we take of the bread and we take of the juice. And he, he looked at this happening all around the Mediterranean, and all around the Middle East, breaking into Europe, breaking into Rome. And, all, and he said, this is the manifold wisdom of God. Now being revealed, the principalities and powers are dumbfounded. They can't get their heads around it. How through this sacrifice of Jesus, through this most selfless act in history, which was the most powerful act in history that's ever happened, one new humanity can be created. And the whole story is moving towards the day when people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation will say, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Until we get there, this is supposed to be a signpost to that. This is the future entering into the present, pointing towards where we're going. And so may God give us grace to be that kind of a people in the days ahead. We're going to ask um, Ian and the team just to, we're going to sit where we are this morning, if that's okay. And the uh, guys are going to pass the communion along um, the seats. I'm going to ask Johnny, maybe, if you just put um, some music gently on in the background. And just as we prepare to take communion, and then I'm going to pray and close us off. Um, I'm going to... I'm going to pray over us that we would become increasingly uh, a community. I think, I think we're well on our way, but we want, to, we want to do the work that we still have to do in order to become the people that can carry the promises of God truly and see the strongholds come down. So um, wherever you are at the moment, maybe you, you want to just take a moment, maybe you want to close your eyes and just allow the Holy Spirit to do in your heart what maybe the Holy Spirit needs to do. Um, you might feel a, just a gentle nudge from the person beside you as communion's passed along. If you wouldn't mind just uh, holding the bread, if that's all right, and the juice when you get it, and we'll take it together as we close off in a moment. If there's a particular area or a particular person or a particular people group that you feel like the Lord in these moments wants to give you grace to forgive, to begin loving in the way he loves, 
Why don't you just allow the Lord to do that in your heart right now?